Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rob Murray checking out the view from the outrageous, though very impressive, grandstand behind the first tee at what promises to be a fascinating Ryder Cup in Italy. That's not true. Disclaimer, I'm actually not in Italy. I'm in St. Leonard's. I was but about to be surprised. I thought I got lost. I was painting a word picture for the listeners there. Nice. Be back in your box until I bring you into the conversation. Luke Donald and his band of 12 European brothers take on Zach Johnson and a dozen of the best the US has to offer this week. And after the fireworks of the Solheim Cup in Spain, they'll need to be at their best to exceed what we saw there. As it does every week, the course will play a significant role in the outcome in Rome, and the purpose-built Marco Simone Country Club is looking in tip-top condition ahead of the week's contest. But TV doesn't always do justice to the lie of the land on the ground. So for that, we have a special guest this week who's been to the Marco Simone course for the Italian Open and has some thoughts on what we might see. Paul Prendergast of Golf Plus Media along in just a moment. Now, normally at this point, I'd introduce Adrian Logue, but he's on some overseas jaunt masquerading as work. So instead, I'm joined in studio by co-host and pen for hire, Jimmy Emanuel. Jimmy, A, good work picking up the slack and bringing the coffee. So there's a peek into why you don't write the intro too early, because you didn't. I did. B, what a primer we saw at the Solheim Cup. Uh, they're really going to have to work hard this week to top that, aren't they? I brought the coffee yesterday. Like <laughs> That's, true. Known. Yeah, uh, that's true. But yeah, it is a tough act to follow because the Solheim Cup was everything these events are supposed to be. Close, a uh, bit of fire, a bit of niggle. bit of side quests of stories of yeah. different things with Lexi and all that sort of stuff. It had everything. Um, and then ended in a tie, which is kind of the ideal situation in yeah. these things, despite the fact that many people don't think so. <laughs> I'll still be talking about it as the first peg goes in the ground yeah. next year. That's well, there, I'd say... I would say in the Solheim Cup, you get more debate about whether it's a relevant result to still have than you would in a Ryder Cup. We might discuss that as we go. Time to get the good oil straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Neither Jimmy nor I have been to the Marco Simone course, but our guest today has. Paul Prendergast is a golf and travel writer with Golf Plus Media, whose work often appears in magazines both here in Australia and overseas. And if that sounds like a LinkedIn bio... It's because it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice. very simple explanation. He's a golf nut and a pretty handy player to boot. He joins us uh, via the Information Superhighway. Paul, thanks for taking some time. I'm going to ambush you right off the bat with a surprise word association game. So the first thing that pops into your head when I say Marco Simone Golf Course. Steep. <laughs> I, <Hilly. laughs> I, I thought that's what you might go for, and this is becoming the sort of overriding theme of the week. So I've just watched a little preview with John Wood interviewing Fred Couples, which was – John Wood has been a revelation so as a yeah. commentator. And the US team have got the carry bags out already, Paul. Does that make sense to you? We touched on this briefly on playing from the tips yesterday, but that's a pretty big call for a professional golf time. I'm not sure I've seen that before at this level. Yes, well, it's going to be – it's certainly going to be an interesting challenge. I think um, we saw some of the comments from um, uh, Zach Johnson and – Stuart Sink the other week where they after they'd been on their scouting trip to say they haven't seen a, a golf course with this much elevation and um, at a Ryder Cup venue. So it's certainly going to be a challenge, not just to the golf, but certainly to, um, you know, the legs, the calves, the <laughs> all sorts of other things uh, on and off the course, I think. What about for spectators? Does it have any We saw that it was a difficult, difficult proposition last week. There were other issues off the course as well with the organisation, but the course itself was really awkward for spectators. And we saw some of the middle stretch of holes in Spain really sparse in terms of people watching. We're going to see the same this week, do you think? I think there's there's more opportunity for people to move around on this golf course than uh, perhaps uh, last week. Uh, there's not so much vegetation and uh, undergrowth, I suppose, between holes, but Certain sections, particularly on the back nine, uh, certain sections of the golf course there um, are quite steep. Um, I think the lower sections are going to be probably where a lot of people will um, find it a little easier to walk. There's quite a few areas there that are um, bordering on flat. 
uh, but some of the steeper sections, um, especially in, as we know in these types of uh, events where there's only six groups on the golf course and everyone trying to crush around them yeah. if they want to move around the golf course with with the matches. Yeah. It could prove quite a challenge moving around. Not at all uncommon to hear people say, I went to a Ryder Cup once, it was fantastic, but never again, Jimmy, because as a spectator, yeah, you've been to the Australian you've Open got- and tried to follow Adam Scott. That's a tiny microcosm yeah. of what Ryder Cup You're seeing nothing compared to what you'd see. Like Prendo says, you're going to see less golf because mm-hmm. there's only ever a couple of people on the golf course. There's that many people crushed into one spot. If you stay in one spot all day, your best result on the opening two days is you're going to see what? Uh, 12. Yeah. 12 games. Yeah. So, no, less than that. Less, yeah. Five, five balls and five four balls. Yeah. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. But the nature of the course, so that'll obviously affect in some ways uh, the way everything plays out. What did you observe at the Italian Open about how tour professionals tackle this course? I mean, that the Italian Open hasn't generally attracted a field of this calibre, but the differences aren't that great once you get up into the – I mean, you're grading on a curve between McElroy and the 50th best player in the world. What did you kind of observe and how did they seem to cope with the course itself? Well, it was, I was there at the Italian Open last year in the final round and it was very much um, a beautiful pot day and I think the forecast for this week is going to be that each day. Um, and I was able to be there last year when we had McElroy, Hatton, Matt Fitzpatrick, you know, a, a, a solid group, a core group of the European uh, players there. So it was quite interesting to watch them and, and the DP World players play it. Um, the, the mix of holes there, it allows you to – there's a lot of, you know, short and risk-reward par four, short par fours that you can uh, make some decisions on. There are some reachable par fives. Uh, I, I think it's, it's just quite interesting watching some of the, the, the different ways that play, players, you know, played the holes uh, in a stroke play event, mind you. So, uh, you know, obviously match plays a different format. But I noted um, that the winning score was very consistent. This has been the third – it was the third uh, Italian Open that concluded this year. Um, and the, the – the winning scores have been pretty much the same. They've been 13, 14, 13 under. So for the mix of short holes and, and birdieable and eagle uh, holes that are out there, it it's certainly, yeah, they're not crazy under par scores. So I think, you know, there's going to be plenty of um, plenty of challenge there as well as plenty of opportunities to see some, um, you know, some, some exciting under par golf. Prendo, can I ask a question? Is it Marco Simone or Marco Simone? <laughs> the, the good stuff. Marco Simone. Simone. I believe. Simone. I believe named after the son of an owner of the castle there, yeah, from man. who you know restored the castle um, uh, back in I think the 14th or 15th century, from memory. Um, and uh, it was named by the, the current owners who built the golf course in the in the late 80s. Um, with a with a you know look to that history. I believe Galileo Galilei lived in the castle. At Have one you point. been on Wikipedia as well? I think we've no. The PGA Tour has done PGA something Tour. on it all. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for castle content. Well, that's fun. that's that's going to be you so know what? good. We kind of should be because this is what we do in golf, and this is what professional golfers will tell you what life is like. You think they're on the road all the time, all around the world. They see everything. What they see is hotel rooms, airports, and taxis. And if you've got lots and lots of money, you're inside of your own jet. Yeah. Peter Senior told me he spent 35 years on the road and never saw a thing. Yeah, and we should take we should stop and smell the roses no, occasionally. A, I think that's the, that the really case for a, all of us as well. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You go to all these events, you see a, a golf course and a hotel and maybe a couple of ordinary restaurants. Like that's that's about it. So when you're, when you're a younger man, the odd bar in the early hours of the morning. Yeah, no, but I can tell you, I can tell you, gents, that this was one of the best commutes to a golf tournament, <laughs> to a media center that I've ever had last year. Coming from the city out to you know along past the uh, the forum with the Coliseum in the distance, and then turning left. Um, 
not quite the same sort of commutes that we have to golf tournaments. No, indeed. I've heard it's already been a a slow one in the shuttles. I was about to say, what was the, what's the trade? Italy is a crazy place at the best of times. There are rules, but nobody observes them because I don't think anybody knows what they actually are. <laughs> Paul, what, legitimately, what's the commute like from – it's only, I think, 10 miles, but that could turn into all sorts of an ordeal, couldn't it? I saw that too, 10 miles. It felt like a lot longer in the, in the Uber. <laughs> it certainly was priced at, you know, a lot longer. Um, it, you have to go from – depending where you're staying, obviously, but most of the hotels are going to be in the city sort of area, but you, you sort of wend your way out of the, the main parts into suburbia, and it's quite a rural setting uh, where uh, the golf course is set. So I would say it was probably a half-hour commute when I did it from um, near the river in the city, but I think with the, you know, there was nowhere near the crowds out there for the Italian Open as there would be no. for this. So I imagine if you're out there, it'd be, there'll be, there'll be, um, of opportunities to enjoy some traffic and some <laughs> you get used to looking at the back of an Alpha or a Fiat or another locally produced car because you're going to see. I think I saw this morning Jimmy didn't have police escorts and they've, they've yeah. set aside one lane for the players, coaches, and whatnot to get yeah, through. Yeah, because they these sort of places where there's typically one road in, one road out. In part, the players and everything always get blocked in there and they have to do that sort of stuff. It was not well, whistling straights last year, maybe. Two American ones ago where they had all sorts of dramas, getting them in and out of there, and they don't bring them on a bus or anything. They bring them in individual cars. Yeah, that's right. The time. It's very strange. It is odd. Very odd. Quick, a quick side, I, of course, as my name suggests, of Italian extraction. Been to Italy twice, once when I was six, which I don't remember much of. But when I was about 16, we went there, and I think this sums up Italy beautifully. Two stories. My uncle picked us up at the airport with his friend who spoke a bit of English, and my mum speaks a bit of Italian. She's Australian. My dad was Italian. And it was a Thursday and at some point in the three-hour trip from the airport to where he lived, my <coughs> mum says to his friend, oh, it's Thursday, you're not working today. And he says, no, no, today's a bridging day. And she said, what's a bridging day? And he said, well, yesterday was a public holiday and tomorrow's a public holiday. And then he sort of shrugged his shoulders as if to say, well, <laughs> why what are you, you going to do? It's a bridging day. Outstanding. The other one was my uncle used to pick us up each day from my grandmother's place and take us to his house. And then from there, we'd decide where to go for the day. On about the fourth day, we were the same route every day. We stopped at this red line. My mum says to him, why are you stopping? And he said, the light's red. And she said, it's been red every day. And he says, yes, but today we have time. <laughs> this is how the place operates. It's it's mm. bizarre. So you'd be nervous about getting to the golf course if you weren't part of the Ryder Cup yes. team, I'm sure. In terms of match play, Paul, and I imagine you would have had this in mind as you wandered around the golf course. The golf course is always central to a golf tournament. It's one of the things that sets the game apart. They're not tennis courts or football fields or cricket. The course is an integral part of it. Did you get any sense of – I always find it a bit of a difficult question – whether it's going to be a good venue for match play, particularly given that it's been designed with this event in mind. I think that's the, the point. I think all the way along, the, the redesign was um, with the Ryder Cup in mind and with match play in mind. As I said earlier, there's there's a lot of um, risk-reward opportunity holes, uh, short par fours, um, plenty of opportunities to, to mess up, though, with water, uh, reachable par fives, and certainly a, a concluding set of holes that um, – are wildly different in terms of, you know, their shape and size. You know, 15 is a, a difficult left-to-right uphill par four with a narrow tilted green. Um, you've got the 320-yard at best um, downhill short par four that could play even shorter if they move the tee forwards that everyone will be able to reach if they choose to. Um, you've got a difficult par three in 17, which is around about 200, and then a 570-yard um, or 550-metre finishing hole that 
um, you could see anything on that hole from eagles to to doubles, depending on you know the state of the match and and, and what uh, what sort of decisions what players are thinking. So it's very much the very much opportunities to have fluctuating match mm-hmm. play scores and a lot of thought processes going through players' heads as they stand on the tee. That sixteenth hole seems to have been they've picked that, and statistically, I think the bulk of matches finishes on finish on the sixteenth in that sort of area. They seem to have picked that to really produce something kind of dramatic. As you say, it's drivable for everybody in the field. Does it actually become a more difficult prospect if they do move the tee forward a bit? Now you're between driver and three wood, maybe, or is it a line? <laughs> is it some yeah. kind of hybrid? It, it really starts to ask some questions, doesn't it? I sat there uh, after for about an hour and watched players go through last year, uh, including Luke Donald, um, who was in the field and has been in the field for the last three. And it was very interesting to watch, you know, what players did. The, there's there weren't a lot of people that laid right back and had gave themselves a full wedge in. There's a bunker that sort of splits the fairway back there. A lot of people went left um, to try and pitch it up the angle of the green away from the water, and obviously quite a few flew it at the at the green. Some some hit some hit right into the water. So there there are any number of things that could go through your mind, and I guess the, the state of the match um, will will dictate that a lot, no matter if it's four ball foursomes or singles. But I sort of wrote in the in um, an article that you might be better off not having the honour on this tee. You know, you might yeah, be good to yeah. see what your what your <laughs> opponent does first, um, uh, and that might dictate what you do thereafter. In the water means five iron for me. <laughs> if he's well, knocked it on the green, I've got no choice but to try and follow. It's where the pin sits there is so determining of what you're going to do because if it gets tucked in that front right point, laying it up and trying to hit a wedge to it is. No bargain it, either. Yeah, it's like <laughs> take four and run from there. Mm. So you kind of uh, – it'll be really interesting how they set it up each day um, because it's got a lot of potential to be exciting. I can't remember which hole it was, um, but there was one at La Golf National that was a bit like that. Was it the two water caves? It was two islands? Yeah, you hit that's to an right. island, you hit to another island kind of thing? And it was – typically the Americans played it quite defensively. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. But, Brendo, I'm interested – the Golf National was so clearly different than it is from the Open to France every year. It was grown up with rough and it was narrowed and it was made to play the way the Europeans wanted to play. I've watched all the Italian Opens here and it doesn't seem like a golf course you could manipulate in the same way. Is that fair to say? I haven't seen what they've done uh, for this week as yet. I mean, we'll all see, you know, hole by hole um, fairly soon. But I think the, the rhetoric last year was that they wanted to try and take the wedge out of the play, uh, the Americans' hands as mm-hmm. much as they could. And, you know, shots from 150 in that identified, I think Eduardo Molinari is the self-confessed stats guru, yeah. uh, the analytics man, um, and he'd identified that they, uh, the, you know, or confirmed what most of us think, that, you know, having wedges in them uh, was probably going to play into the Americans' hands a lot. So I think what they're going to do is um, they'll, they will grow the rough in and, and challenge you off the tee and force you to, if you, if you want that sort of 150-yard, in approach shot on a lot of these um, more difficult holes, that you're going to have to challenge yourself to see the very narrow part of the fairway or lay it up a little bit further back. Um, I think it's it's probably going to be just growing the rough and moving the tees that will you know, that will change things around for for Marco Simone. Um, they may I don't know what they're going to do in terms of green uh, if they. They got very thick rough, I believe. You know, from off the fairways, the the choking sort of rough. Um, 
So if it if it gets windy there as it did last year and in certain parts of it, it'd be quite interesting to see what sort of scores there are. I think that might play into the fact that the Italian Open scores have not played significantly under par for a um, a, for a target golf course. Yeah. Um, it's not really going to be a target golf course. We often talk about this Europe versus US thing, and that's you know there's, there's sort of truth there in terms of the contest itself. But isn't the reality, Paul, a bit like the Presidents Cup? That the truth is that all 24 of these players essentially play the same golf tournaments every week anyway, and so their games. Rory McIlroy, you would not describe as, you know, he's not a he's a he's a quintessential modern golfer, which is what the PGA Tour. That's the question the PGA Tour asks, and more and more we see the DP World Tour the same. So there isn't really great differences. It doesn't feel to me between the two teams or the style of play, but we seem to play this up every year. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, Peter Thompson once said it doesn't take these guys long to come to a venue and you know figure, figure it, it out, out. within yeah. a couple of days. So um, I think that's true. I, I, the US team, for example, has had any number of years to do a scouting trip prior than prior to you know, the event and chose only to do it a couple of weeks ahead. None of them play the Italian Open at all. So there's not one player has, has turned up and played it in tournament conditions. I think there's only two in the European squad that haven't played in the tournament. That's John Rahm and, um, and Aberg. All the rest have been there. I don't know that that's going to play much no. you know, into their hands. You know, it's... Um, you know, local knowledge and that type of thing might might help in some situations, but uh, I guess uh, we'll wait and see. But it doesn't always appear to be that, that way. We used to have this discussion about the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne, yeah. didn't we? Uh, mm. You talk about Matt Jones and the advantage he has at the Australian. That's legitimate. He's grown up playing there yeah. week in, week out in every different wind, and he goes, oh, it's tricky when the wind does this. But in terms of tournament golf courses, <clears> the <throat> Australians aren't much – or the international players aren't much more familiar with President's Cup at Royal Melbourne. No, than I mean, players, he, so. you have to have – so many more rounds than the other person, not a handful more. Um, and and in those a, conditions, too. and particularly at a place like this, it's not, it's not tricked up in any way. It's, it's built for this, which is includes infrastructure space and everything yeah, like that. Absolutely. That's an, it's not just about a golf course. Um, Matt Jones at the Australian Golf Club is a relevant, you know, good example because Matt's not playing different clubs off tees or anything like that necessarily, but he knows when there's a wind coming from this way, it gets blocked by a certain thing or when a flag's in a certain spot that you're not going there and that. That is a real, that's, that's a deep, advantage. deep right. knowledge base. The European players don't have that from playing a few Italian Opens. No. The guy who does have that is, as Prendo mentioned, Eduardo Molinari, yep. who is... Not just a stats man, he is maniacal oh, yeah, on statistics and detail. Something wrong with him. He's, I've seen some of the stuff he does for his own game. Number one, I couldn't understand it, and it's not because it was written in Italian, it's because it was written in numbers. <laughs> not our <laughs> yet. But then he does that service now for other players yeah. on tour, but then he does it on the golf course to a certain extent, and they've apparently had him drilled in on here for so long. Imagine. Um, and I'm pretty sure Dodo still lives in Italy, so I'm sure he hasn't left it to chance to try and cram it in before the week no, like no, us as a no. bunch of golf riders do with a deadline, but he he will be a point of difference that will be really important because you never know how much these captains now are going to embrace the stats and all of the things that, you know, Suzanne Pedersen last week seemed to, oh, I don't care about that stuff as much as others. Luke Donald strikes as a guy who's going to listen to a little bit of the stuff that they get out of. I'm not sure who the Europeans are using this year, but they always in, they always hire a stat company. But I think Molinari is going to be the one that they're going to be turning to all the time and asking questions. And 
He's very well respected amongst that team as well. Mm. So he goes out and tells John Rahm or Rory McIlroy, no, 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 no. You don't want to hit it there. You want to hit it there. They're going to go, okay. Mm. Yeah. So I think that is their local knowledge, um, which kind of is, I think, the case when we've had President's Cups at Royal Melbourne and stuff because they work it out pretty quickly. So Jeff Ogilvy is our internationals. So everyone gets sent to play with Jeff. Tigers is kind of the sand belt specialist for the Americans. He's sent to play with your Thomases and stuff and tell them, no, no, you don't hit it like that. And they go, oh, okay, I'll work it out. So, yeah. yeah, indeed. Big week for Molinari, by the way. You imagine having a Ryder Cup in your hometown or your home country. I mean, Francesco will be incredibly disappointed he didn't make the team. He started this year looking very positive, but unfortunately it sort of slipped away. Well, yeah. Big week for Eduardo to be the better Molinari yeah. with all his stats. <laughs> you wonder how he gets time to practice his game when he's got so much Well, because I, I, I think he's maniacal about that yeah, too. he is. There was yeah. a terrific piece I read yesterday, which was a whole-by-whole -whole breakdown of the course with the course designer, the lead designer from European Tour, and Eduardo Molinari giving their thoughts on the holes. It's stark the difference the way the way tour players think. Prendo, you're a decent player. You're not in the class of tour pros, but you look at a golf course in a completely different way, don't you? I was staggered at some of the things that Eduardo had to say. Compare, they clearly hadn't matched up their answers beforehand. It was like, I would think what the designer thinks about this hole, and Eduardo just said, no, you don't worry about that. <laughs> this, is, this is what it's all about. It's a different game, and it really is a different game. I agree. Yes, they... Um I know that the Eduardo's sort of stats base has been um, – he's taken a lot of information off the feedback from players as well, so it hasn't just been driven by sort of the maths of it all. Um, there's been tinkering. He's been on site an awful lot over the last few years just looking at different things. So um, I think the uh, the feedback from players in the Italian Open and um, – it, it might it might form you know a part of what um, advantage the Europeans might be able to to take into the week. Um, but you've still got to hit the shots, don't you? You've still got to hit the shots. <laughs> the yeah. shot. yeah. It's one thing knowing what you should do. Everyone who's played golf knows this. Here's what you should do. I oh, think, here's what you actually did. I think to your point, Rod, that uh, tour players see things completely differently. I mean, it's I've always always found it fascinating and I find it particularly interesting I've caddied at a lot of golf courses on tour that I've played a lot of golf and played with the architect. Bonnie Doon's a good example. Mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time there with Mike Clayton and I've caddied there and I've played there a whole bunch and played with a whole lot of members and it's a stark difference in how all three of those groups see it. Statistics people work on purely kind of the data in front of them and, and the examples they have which come from tour pros and then they deliver it. There's often, even in that sort of setting, a grey area where the tour pro questions it. Having the tour pro as the guy who, even if he's just the one interpreting the stats, that's a that's a, that's a really interesting sort of uh, thing. So imagine, and also just imagine going to play Marco Simone just to play the Ryder Cup course, and there's Eduardo Molinari <laughs> sitting behind the green charting things with a <laughs> compass and a protractor, and <laughs> uh, indeed, I think that I think that sixteenth hole is a classic example there at Marco Simone. I mean. All of us standing on the tee would look at the water and the bunkers and think, right, there's a right pin. Um, we might lay it up to the left if we're not feeling great. Um, many of them will just pound it at the at the green, and if they hit the water, they'll they'll trust their wedge shots to get up and down for Make four. You know, from back there. So they do see it differently. Um, but I think match play is a different animal, you know, and especially in those four foursomes um, matches where you, much as you want to push it behind, push it to the background, you still worry about the shot you're going to leave your your partner, um, it can play tricks. So, 
speak for yourself about the water and the bunker. I'm worrying about the grandstand yeah. down the left. <laughs> 10,000 people, yeah. yeah. Jimmy's all wor- already worried about the lag pup that's going to finish three feet from the hole. That's what he's thinking. Yeah, that, it doesn't right. matter whether it's for seven I'm, I'm or eight. Worried, I'm worried about the fact that I'm going to play with a partner and I'm going to maybe make a four-footer. That gives me the horrors. On the golf course, Prendo, the one thing that strikes looking at the pictures of it and, and reading all the stuff and watching the tournament, the par threes don't really stand out as anything special. Um, how do you think they're going to play in a match play sort of a situation? Um, I think I agree with you. I don't think there uh, there's any standout um, uh, brilliant holes that you just look at and, you know, and sometimes you sit there and think about other great par threes that you've seen and mm. where does this one rank in the in the spectrum, I think 17 is probably the one that's the, mm. you know, the one that's going to obviously from its location on the golf course, but it's a 200 meter hole. It's got, it's really a, you know, um, aim up and hit the green sort of shot. If you hit it left, it could cast, you know, kick down off the short grass into the, um, into a sort of collection area about 30, 40 meters below the green. There's water that runs along back left to the right. And if you saw this year's um, Italian Open where Moronk hit it, he had to hit a, sort of flop shot across the the angle and the undulation of the green and it barely kept it on the back fringe from where he hold it. So that was significant. But, yeah, I don't think the other par threes are um, going to be as significant in terms of variation in, you know, um, in, uh, in in shots. There's not a lot of uh, really difficult um, sort of penalty areas and the like that, um, you know, encroach on the putting surface and the like. Fifth. I think 13 might be a bit of a sleeper on the top of the hill. It's only a shortish par um, three, but very much exposed to the elements. It's, it plays across the top of the hill, but it's a very high point. So if there's any breeze at all, yeah. um, you know, the, the, I think the players had some difficulties with that. Uh, a bit of a sleeper hole, I would think. Clates talks about par threes. There's two types of par threes. There's par threes where you hit a different shot depending where the pin is, and there's par threes where you hit the same shot no matter where the pin is. And this feels like a collection of par threes where you hit the same shot no matter where the pin is and try and take your two stabs from there. I think last week at the Solheim Cup was a good example of not architecturally great par threes, but when you get ones that are really difficult, are really important and quite fun to watch in match play. Um where a really good shot is different to an okay shot. There was a couple of occasions last week where someone took on the flag and hit a good shot and the other person hit a pretty solid, you know, commercial shot and it was a stark difference in the opportunities they have. There's there's a place for that in match play golf and you hope that the way these are set up to play for a Ryder Cup, it's it's kind of designed that way. Um, They just don't look like there's ones that maybe are going to give that moment. Um, whereas that's been a pretty big staple of Ryder Cup golf for a while is a par three that really... It tend to be pivotal, don't they? We remember Luke Donald yeah. in, uh, at Medina and... Uh, well, Medina was the great example. Yeah, I mean, so if you watch yeah. back that official film, you'll see that whole non-stop. Uh, over and over and yeah. over again, yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, match play itself is fascinating. We'll come to that in a moment. But just before that, what sort of stretches of holes might we look for, Paul? It, it looks on paper like the start's pretty solid. There's three 400-plus metre par fours to get you going, so you would expect a lot of halving going on there in probably nervous fours, chipping apart or yeah. two putts to get you there. Where are the stretches where we might see five? We've identified 16, obviously, and we know that that's where they want the excitement to happen. What about between, say, the fourth tee and the 16th green? What should we be sort of on the lookout for? Well, I... Th- I- tend to think the stretches between 9 and 12 and then the 15 and um, 18, as we've talked about. But 9 and 12, 9's a reachable par 5. So it's played a, a, across relatively flat sort of 
part of the of the uh, the property there, heading back to the the clubhouse area. So um, when I was there, there were people going for the green into the you know with long irons and the like. So I suspect we'll see some holes um, won and lost on that with eagles, birdies, and that type of thing. There's plenty of undulation and slope on these greens too, not mm. just on nine, but. Um, plenty of spots where they might have pins that you know allow balls to feed down so it gets a bit exciting like that when you look at it you go from that ninth hole which is fairly accessible to a, the most difficult hole as it's rated in the italian open which is the 10th and that's a par four that goes um back up the hill with a second shot that is played quite significantly uphill to a, a pretty well guarded green um it, it gets more difficult as you get closer to the green in terms of the second shot in and um that will be a tough hole and has played that way statistically and then you've got 11, which is a, a risk-reward short par four, albeit directly uphill. Um, it'll be interesting to see what players do there, but I suspect they'll do, as we talked about, something different to what we might think. Um, <laughs> most players in this field are going to have great short games. They'll probably bomb it up at the green no matter where the pin is. Um, there's a gaping bunker on the left, um, and you know they'll trust their short games. Laying it back, um, you know that might be something that people might do if, the, if their, their opponent is messed up um, ahead of them. But it's a short hole. It's 300 metres, 310 metres, but straight uphill. And then you've got another par five thereafter, the 12th, um, which plays from that very high point back down the hill. Um, you might recall Matt Patrick hit the flag with a, an iron last year in the Italian Open. Yeah, it's been played a, an awful lot. It's probably <laughs> the only tree on the golf course too, I might add, that's in play, uh, unless you really spray it. So uh, not a lot of trees are going to come into play, but that one comes in. Um, probably about 80 metres short of the green. So I think that stretch of hole, there's, there's you know, a par five, um, a difficult par four, a short par four, and then another par five. I think we might see some some fluctuations in scores around there. Enough to fry your brain just hearing him talk about it, isn't it, Jimmy? <laughs> it's, it's hard, it's easy, it's easy, it's hard, it's hard. This is impossible. It's a good tree, 2 on 12. <laughs> I like that tree. Clates is but, never going to speak to you again. <laughs> no, it's – no. It's quite okay. Um, I – I actually think 12 is the kind of par five that approaches giving two a pros fits. Like it, it sets with, like Prentice says, it, it's downhill. It takes a pretty sharp turn at the driving point. It gets pretty narrow. Then there's a tree halfway in the way. Then there's these sort of cross bunkering to this funny little green. Like it, I think it could be really interesting to watch. If you went and played it, you'd be like, oh, okay, it's a par five. That's good on you. But I think for this kind if of thing- If you know it, what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, I think it's got a bit of interest to it. Um, and like Paul said a couple of times with match play, it's going to encourage a lot more, oh, let's have a go at it. Um, I think in the, the four balls, particularly this week, there's going to be some really aggressive play on some holes that are hard golf holes, mm. um, which is going to be cool to watch. Mm. Um which one of the players from each team there's the aggressors will be also interesting to watch because there's probably more consistent and not as recklessly aggressive players than there's been in the past in Ryder Cups, um, I think particularly with the Europeans. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they manage that. Yeah, let's, let's talk about match play and the difference between match play and stroke play. Brendo, it strikes me that if you're a touring professional, you could play all year in stroke play events with 100 different players and at no point take any notice of what they're doing. So they really are out of their comfort zone, these guys, aren't they, in match play, where suddenly it matters what the guy who just hit before you or is going to hit after you has done or is going to do. It's, a, it's well out of the comfort zone for these guys, isn't it? Absolutely. I think you, you probably come into um, every hole thinking you've got a, um, you know, a game plan, but in, in stroke play events, but certainly everything's thrown out the window in a, in a match play if your opponent's gone first and 
um, regardless of whether they've played well or not. Um, it, it will change what you're thinking. It will it will bring conversations in um, that might not have been there. It's not just grab the driver and hit or grab the three wood that we planned on Tuesday or Wednesday in the, um, and and lay it up short of that trap. It, you'll be there'll be there'll be different permutations going on depending on you know where you are in the match um, and and how you're feeling and and if it's if it's a singles match or if it's in the foursome or four ball, they all have a different um, challenge. Well. Yeah. Webb Simpson's got a very different game to Brooks Kepka, doesn't he? Those two are going to map out a golf course extreme. Not that Webb Simpson's in the team. I was going to say, do you Bri- know something we don't know? Brian Harmon has got, got a very different golf game to Brooks Kepka. He well, cannot stand on different see, sides. That's right. He can't see the game. No, way. absolutely. That thinking on your feet, Jimmy, kind of catches this. Everything we read about in instructions in magazines and those things is you want to try and keep it constant, the mental side of the game. Don't get too up. Don't get too down. Don't stew over bogeys. Don't over-celebrate birdies. That all goes out the window with this Absolutely. stuff, doesn't it? You don't get to make a game plan first. You've got to think on your feet. Absolutely. And it's about uh, – it, it probably falls to the captain, but no one's ever been in a team room and fully knows what that is. But – some guys you've got to also in this this week not stay level when they're up and about. Poulter. Yeah, Poulter and Reed and Rory's played some of his yeah, best golf much. when he's up and about. But some of the other guys, you've got to temper them because they get, you know, too wound up. So um, it, it is all out the window this week. And for as many rookies as we've got, they could be playing as great golf as they have been this year. They can be a really good player. They can have experience at match play in amateur golf, but until they get into this environment, they're not going to know if they're built for it. Um, and that's that's going to that's always a fascinating thing to watch. And then and then exactly as you say, you're know, watching people who aren't playing a similar game try and play with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Phil and Tiger is the greatest oh. example. <laughs> Will Al Sutton ever live? No, down of course the he won't. <laughs> but uh, they. That's the great example of that. But even just trying to like think like that and offer some support, even working out if a, your teammate wants support, if they want your help reading a putt, it's like leave you alone. Yeah. It's like going out and caddying in the final round of a major for someone you've never met. You don't know where you stand, whether they want a yardage, whether they want some help, and um, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing to see how these guys meld into these things. Um, interestingly, I note. Jordan Spieth and Patrick Cantlay both went hatless in the practice round yesterday. Oh, they've done a Rory. They've gone a bit European. Whoa. That's 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 impressive. I like that. That's an alpha move for the Europeans, isn't it? So yeah. When you get copied, that's uh, the greatest. Well, because there's flattery. there's not that many with enough kind of lettuce on top to keep the hat <laughs> off. So in the sun. So I'd like I'd like the option. <laughs> <laughs> give, give me the sombrero, please, if you uh, if you don't mind. This is the other side of this equation, isn't it? Paul, is that this is, and for first-time Ryder Cuppers, you've, you've heard people talk about this, friends. I think it was Colin Montgomery I heard once say, it was all this, you know, hype and the rest of it, and he was like, oh, I've played plenty of golf. And he got to the first tee of the Ryder Cup, and his only thought as his hand was shaking to it up was, dear God, please let me make some sort of sensible contact mm. <laughs> for everything he'd achieved in the game. That moment only comes once, but that can go either way, can't it? We saw Webb Simpson hit a shank off the first tee at, where was that? With a hybrid. Uh... What was that? What course was that? It was a horrible fur. Was it, Cel- was it Celtic Manor? It's just a horrible right to left. Yeah, Celtic league. Manor, I think. Celtic Manor, yeah. 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 But um, that all plays into it too, doesn't it, Paul? Because for all oh, of the great shots and the practice you've done, you can't recreate these moments, can you? You've got to well, get that first end. tee, I mean, I haven't been to a Ryder Cup. I don't know if you guys have, but we've been to President's Cups, and that's pretty daunting on that first tee. Um, it's a pretty rambunctious crowd, no matter what, in the Ryder Cup, and especially around that first tee, the nerves are... 
um, enough there. But this is not, you know, the warm embrace of a, an old friend first hole either. It's <laughs> no. straight uphill, 450 yards, choked by rough with bunkers. Yeah. So um, it's it's not going to be a simple, you know, just get it off the tee with a, a long on or a rescue. They're going to have to aim up here. So um, it, it very much is out the window. Ludwig Aberg is going to be a great example. You know, he's, he's a rookie in this, but he's only – he hasn't played – double-figure professional tournaments yet. Um, It's going to be quite interesting to see how his great skill set aims up in this, you know, cauldron of an environment. He might be early enough in it that he's just kind of blood sort of to it. He just sort of stands there and goes, oh, yeah, but there's four from each team that haven't done it before. Managing them is so difficult of – do you sit them for the first and let them enjoy it and whatever? Because then they've got to think about it for another afternoon. Yeah, true. And if everyone goes out and plays well, then you go, oh, well, do we change with what, what worked? And um, th- and there's no telling how a player is going to respond. I mean, Brian Harmon's been playing professional golf for a long, long time and played one of the most nerveless final rounds in the most important golf tournament of his career this year. But he, we don't know. It could be anything. So, um, Aubert, I think, is an interesting one that, Luke Donald spoke about him uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, and they talked about he played in that, uh, now I can't remember what, Hero Trophy, Hero Cup at the start of the year. There used to be the Seve Trophy. Um, and instantly, apparently, they all went, oh, hang on. These are good. This is something. And Luke Donald spoke about he played college golf, and he was the best player in college golf at Northwestern. And he said, I was the best player, but I wasn't head and shoulders the best player. This kid was so much better. Uh, so we instantly started thinking, oh, it's early. He still hasn't even turned pro, but if he does. Don't rule this out. Um, so he'll be uh, – yeah, that's a fascinating prospect to watch. A lot of it. How, and it, the European kind of pairings and stuff and how they manage that is, seems really obvious, but we've got four rookies that we don't know what we're going to do with. And so – and uh, who do you put them with? I mean, everybody needs guidance through their first cup. You've got to put them with some sort of veteran. We talked yesterday on the playing from the tips about Colsarts Westwood, and Colsarts yeah. said afterwards, you know, Westwood just told me everything to do, and I just did it, and it worked out fantastically in that case. Not always going to be the case, is it? You know, you might be playing with a hero of yours, someone that you've been watching on TV for years, and now they're shepherding you around the course. There's, there's so much more to this than just golf. Oh, yeah. I, I The foursomes is the fascinating one yeah. where, as Paul said earlier, you try and put it in the back of your head as much as you can not to Good say one. sorry and not to do, you know, whatever. But if you're, you know, Nikolai Hoygaard and you get sent out with Rory McIlroy, who's a guy I'm sure you've idolised for a while. Plug one in the bunker on the first. Yeah, you, Good luck, trying Rory. To, <laughs> trying to, like, put that aside is very difficult. Um, and that's that's a fascinating thing is, you know, there's some people there with a lot of experience doing this. Freddie Couples is now, like, the permanent the assistant captain, he gets it. Jim Furyk's got some good examples of what not to do after France in a couple of years ago. Um, he broke up, you know, successful teams in the sake of putting others together, and he saw the fall apart of DJ and Brooks and Tiger and Patrick Reed and all that sort of stuff. So um, there's a lot of experience in those team rooms about how that works, but not a job I'd want. No, and none of it's. It's not like it's maths and it's predictable. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. You know? No. Two plus two can sometimes equal five, and it's like, well, how the hell do we sort of deal with this? Let's talk about some characters, Paul. Rory seems to really stand out 
in golf generally, but certainly for this European team. I saw a terrific little piece on the uh, on Twitter yesterday. I think the European team had done it. They've done some fabulous social media, by the way. Follow the Ryder Cup Europe yeah. feed if you want to see really good social media. They had him read out some quotes, you know, somebody saying, oh, it's just an exhibition. I've played a lot of golf. Of course, they were his quotes from before he played his first Ryder Cup. And when they told him that, he'd forgotten. He just started laughing. I mean, yeah, well, that's all changed. Now, we saw him at Whistling Straits literally in tears in front of the world on television disappointed at his own performance. How important are characters and leaders in the team? Rory stands out in Europe, and is there a Rory on the US side for your money? Well, I agree. Yes, Rory's yeah, he's moved from that man who's the, the bouncing junior sort of player on that team a number of... It seems like only yesterday that I he know. Was, was that player. But They all um, had those wigs. Do you remember that? His first one? Yeah, they all I, came out with the wigs on because he had the crazy curly hair. Yeah, yeah and he... It, he he takes on so much responsibility now and still performs, you know, as he does. Um, uh, so he, he's going to be very important. I think Justin Rose as well, who you know, often gives the impression when he's between the ropes of being very, you know, um, uh, I, I suppose quiet and unassuming, but I think in the team room he's, he's anything but that. You know, he's he's certainly a, a knockabout guard. I think I watched the uh, – we might have all watched the captain selections for the European team and – they were all grateful and humble and very excited when they were named and they had crosses, but I didn't see anybody with a split watermelon grims quite so much as Justin Rose making his sixth appearance, yeah. you know. Knows so what it means, I guess, in some ways. Pete, exactly right. Knows so, it's probably his last too. Yeah, <laughs> so could be. And that sure. stuff I think rubs off even before he opens it, you know, has a word to say, uh, just knowing he's there. Uh, good question on the American side. Um, I think there's one – immutable truth about this and we know we're not going to see Cantlay and um, um, his good pal um, broken up in terms of their, their partnerships. Um, I'm trying to think who the, the Rory character might be um, it's hard, on the, isn't it? on it's the American hard. side. Jimmy? It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the Americans have uh, really good combinations but not a clear on-course leader. Uh, Scotty Scheffler has been the best player in the world for a long, long time, but that doesn't strike as him. Doesn't feel like a cheerleader, does he? No, he doesn't seem like the guy that's going to go out and, you know, the only we've seen him play a couple of these team events, but very much as the guy on the up, not as the guy on the top. You'd want uh, to be in the trench with him, but you'd love to be on his team. I'd He's love to have him hitting solid. my second shot. Yes. In the fair. <laughs> well, actually, he hits it too close for me to yeah, make anything, so that's, that's <laughs> not going to work. But... Uh, there's the guys who are going to be the sort of spiritual leaders, I think, aren't going to be the guys doing a lot of the encore stuff. Ricky Fowler strikes as a really important guy. He's going to be the unifying kind of force of a couple of factions almost. Everybody loves Ricky, don't Everybody they? loves Ricky. Everyone's going to get behind Ricky, but Ricky's not going to play a whole heap. No. So it's a it's a really interesting balance of – and I think the Americans have often struggled to find that. Mm. You know, they – they kind of at one stage got behind Patrick Reed, who was a guy who wasn't that popular with the players because he was just he did the kind of job he upset Rory. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't have a guy that you could send out who's going to really niggle Rory into being because as much as those Reed McElroy matches were brilliant to watch, Rory didn't really get the best of it. He took the bait every time, and, and he and he so, lost so, he lost yep. his sort of edge by playing the game the way Reed wanted to. Same at the Masters. Um, Thomas does a little bit of that, but they'll be a little bit protective of Justin Thomas at this point until he you know, shows that he's got a bit of form. But he, with the 
nonsense of putting the putter on the ground and you know saying you didn't give me that one and all that sort of stuff. If he tries a bit of that stuff in a European crowd, I'd be mm. surprised. Um, yeah, the American side is a harder one to read. It's a different dynamic, isn't it? It's, it's, I think it's probably got to do with the way they – with the, the culture or the system that breeds top golfers. Would you agree with that, do you think, Paul? The Europeans have this common enemy idea. The Americans every two years kind of come together and it's a defensive thing for them. They're defending against attack or it doesn't matter on paper if the Europeans are way better. The Americans are always the favourites and the ones who've got the X on their back. It's a totally different dynamic, isn't it? Well, it is. And they've got the, uh, you know, the the advantage or and potentially disadvantage uh, of having to do this every year. You know, they've got yeah. the Ryder Cup and a President's Cup. So um, whereas the, the Europeans are coming together, you know, once every two years, and therefore they build to that, and there's a crescendo of, you know, um, for them, um, the opportunity or the advantage for the Americans is they get to to gel partnerships and things like that. But um, you know, maybe maybe there's not that same sense of, um, um, uh, pr- well, I, I shouldn't say the word pride, but maybe it's not quite the same um, uh, thing that burns inside the Europeans because they get to do it once every once every two years. How much do the US team miss Mickelson's Tuesday money matches with the young players that he used to do for years, breeding them specifically for the Ryder Cup, do you reckon, Jimmy? I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, there's other guys who sort of do that. I mean, Ricky played those forever. I'm sure he helps put together a lot of those sort of things he's now. Not a, he's not a Mickelson character, though, is he? No, he's- but they weren't particularly successful in Mickelson's era of the Ryder Cup either. Mm. They've never been successful on the road, that's for sure. Yeah, but... There's, you know, I, I think that bred a lot of competition and a lot of that stuff that then got brought in there. And he clearly identified guys who were going to be on teams with him and wanted them to be a part of it. But I don't know that that necessarily was a successful sort of a thing because it yet again, the argument around the Thomas decision was that it's a boys club. Mm-hmm. Kind of needs to be in a way, doesn't well, it? Well, yeah, but team Phil's, game. Phil's Tuesday money game was a boys club. True. You had to get in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one of his main guys was Keegan Bradley. Bradley, You can't get in the team, you know. I think you can make a lot out of guys playing practice rounds and everything like that together. Very few of them pay even any remote attention to what the other person does. If they're playing a money game, sure, they're doing that. But There's less of that these days too, isn't there? There's less of that and there's, you know. Actually, is it banned? Did the tour ban money matches? But there is... A lot of people who are very familiar with each other and their games uh, in the American team. The obvious pairings is great, but you kind of want people who just could play with anyone. The Europeans really strike as being, there's some more obvious guys who could play together, but it strikes as, oh yeah, if I just go and play with him, it doesn't matter to me. That's always been the problem for the internationals in the President's Cup is you mix between that makes 100% sense and... I really don't know what to do with you. Uh, and Ernie was shown in the air of his ra- ways in uh, Royal Melbourne. We didn't play Mark Leishman and Cam Smith together because the data said not to. Yeah, I mean, those two guys. Yeah. You, they it, almost pulled off a World Cup win out of nowhere. There is nothing in terms of data that can tell you more than what those two guys find when they go and play golf together. Yeah. Um, you know, the Americans, if you've got these these pairings worked out because Max Homer and Colin Morikawa played college golf together and Wyndham Clark and Brooks Kepka play practice rounds together, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes out the first day and it all goes in the can. That's harder to bounce back. Yeah. It strikes me, Paul, this ties into some of that that we've just been talking about. The US don't have a Seve, do they? I mean, Seve is still as present at the Ryder Cup 
every two years as the first time he played in 1983, I think was his first match, or 81? 81 or 83, whichever it was. He missed the very first one because he was in dispute with the European Tour about appearance money, which was very sevy. often forgotten, but a very sevy part of the whole Very sevy yeah, part beautiful. of the whole thing. But that narrative still runs through the European team. You, you, I'm trying to think of who that might be for the Americans. I can't think of anybody. No, I think in terms of the mercurial nature of the game, I think a Jordan Spieth in, with his A game would certainly inspire a lot of them this week. Um, but Seve was a lot more than just his game, wasn't he? That yeah. sheer charisma and the ability to bring people together and that follow me attitude. Um, um, you're correct. Um, I'm trying to find a person who that might be. Azinger, who Seve argued with, but that was fleeting. It's not that Seve is the Ryder Cup, really, too, for both sides. Yeah, in fact, so, I think. Um, you're not going to find an equivalent. No. Um, so trying is a fool's errand. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's. There's not been because America's produced these better players who are better away, f- a better 51 weeks of the year because they're individuals yeah, and right. because they've got, you know, Nicholas and Tiger and all that sort of stuff. Just it, not great Ryder Cup records, uh, not at all. I mean, Tiger seems in the last couple of years to have really embraced this great whole singles concept. record, by the way. Yeah, great singles record. Yeah, but playing. With someone else is always proven difficult. Um, it's hard for the other person with Tiger. It's oh, the same with Nicholas. If you if you get asked to play with Tiger, that can't be comfortable. No matter even who. the uh, if you imagine playing foursomes with Tiger, no, and he says to you on the first tee, you're going to use his golf yeah. ball, and he hands it to you. I'd be worried just about losing one of his golf balls with it stamped on the side. Can I have a spare? Just what what like, is this worth? Like, I'm sticking turning this on to him and saying, "Sorry, I just lost it." Like. <laughs> That's horrifying. That'll be on eBay by the end of this week. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, but um, that's often been, and and this search for someone to stand up and be that person is really difficult and puts so much on them. We see it with Adam Scott with the President's Cup, that Adam is so desperate to change the narrative of what the President's Cup is and He's now in this stage of still playing, but he's the hero of so many of the guys who are coming up and playing, and that becomes difficult for them, not to the same level as Tiger. But but you pour all this into it, but it just doesn't work. And the Americans aren't at the same point of constantly you know, losing like the internationals, but they're not going to get that same spirit and, and sort of thing going. So um, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to try and find that person. Yeah, indeed. Rory's kind of turning into not a Seve, but I think Rory's turning into one of those European figures that in 20 years people will still be talking about his contribution to the Cup, and young players will want to emulate him and what he's done. He's really turned into a hell of an ambassador for the game. He's got his critics, and he's not right about everything, but what an ambassador for the game he's turned into, Paul McElroy. I think we're very lucky to have him, personally. Absolutely, and I think it's probably almost beyond dispute that when he's playing at his best, there's nobody better. No. Um, it, most people gravitate towards... Um, McElroy yeah. uh, appearance, you know, at any event. The, the Italian Open last year that I attended last year was a classic example, you know. I mean, the throngs of people that just were there. And I recall Nicholas back in the day getting, you know, applause when he just walked onto the practice range. Same thing happened with McElroy last year, even though, you know, the, the reigning US Open champion was there and all sorts of others. So he's certainly that that charisma and that, that gravitas, um, you know, he's, he's a standout certainly for the Europeans. Yeah. Um, just feels more important to them to me. Yeah, I mean, Rory is 
has been quite open about not wanting to be Tiger, mm-hmm. um, despite having the closest skill set to him that we've seen since Tiger. Uh, and you get the impression sometimes when you watch him playing week-to-week tournaments, sometimes it just, just isn't there. Yeah. Um, just a day at work. Yeah, the majors, he gets there and tries really hard, but it hasn't in the last couple of years synced up. He gets to the Ryder Cup and you can tell it's, you know, there's a big kind of difference in how he feels about it. And you got to see it last uh, last time at Whistling Straits when he was visibly emotional mm. about having played poorly. Now, that's the weight of leading a team that, you know, obviously is a worry sometimes, but that it meant that much to him is kind of a – I remember watching that interview happen live and thinking, yeah. I'm, wow. I, I'm surprised. That's yeah. not the guy I thought necessarily was there, which is, I think, uh, impressive and um, – it, he really knows he's he's very important. He knows how important he is. Um, and he's the John Rahm's kind of the opposite in terms of outgoing emotion. But John Rahm knows how much he means to Europe, and it means a whole lot to John Rahm. Yeah, um, which is really cool to see. You know that these guys are completely different characters these weeks. And Rory's going to be great because he was in a. At a Bucks party in the Greek <laughs> Islands. I mean, what kind of... <laughs> He's got to be there's relaxed. There's no better prep for team golf than that. Yeah, but it's certainly better than playing soccer and doing your ankle the week before the Open at, uh, <laughs> at the Old Course. He's a funny one, Rory, isn't he? And I think the reason people are drawn to him, and players like Seve was probably a bit the same, there are certain events where you're right. Maybe the Irish Open where he almost made the cut and it was the story. Maybe yeah. he hit his first shot out of bounds and you could just see this was something really special to him. And it was, you, you can feel it. And other players are in the same position, but it's a different thing. So he's he really is a, a hugely important thing. to For all of that, Prendergast, who's going to win? 30 years since the Americans did it on the road. Surely, mathematically, <laughs> at some point they've got to do it. And every year they don't, we get closer to the year they do. Eduardo sounds like he's the man to ask, as opposed to me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, we haven't had a close um, final score since Medina in 2-12. I mean, there's oh, been, yeah. you know, it was, what was the margin? 10 points last oh, time. Yeah, 19-9. Um, embarrassing, yeah. So, and I do think that the, the home, uh, you know, the home uh, game, if you will, and the crowd and that type of thing will probably tip the scales. I, um, I think there are a lot of players that are in pretty good form who have been um, – well raced of late too, you know, playing some of the European Tour events, the Volvo PGA, um, you know, Hovland winning in um, winning the FedEx Cup and the like. So, you know, I'd probably the fact that it's a home game, they're going to have that groundswell of support, and you know, there's probably a few more players there that might be in a bit more form. Um, I'd probably tend towards the Europeans. If you had, however, if you had to pick, no, that's exactly right. If you had to pick, that what do you reckon, Jimmy? You, you get the feeling that. America has to do it over there at some point, but I really like the balance of how this European team sits. You know, they've got experience in a certain number of guys who still are at the top of their game. They're not just experienced and getting the starts. Uh, like Paul said, you got <coughs> Hovland was the best player on on the planet yep. for the last couple of months. You know, Tommy Fleetwood's been playing some incredible golf. You got the younger guys coming through. The it, you you don't know what. It would have looked like if the live thing didn't take away those Sergios and Pulters and all that, but it's it's kind of forced upon a refresh at every level that has perfect timing. Yeah. Um, I think Europe just looked too good top to bottom uh, and in their mix. Uh, there's a lot in the US to like, but there's a lot of the same. 
Um, there's a lot of elite ball strikers, um, which is great for team golf, but there's not a lot of the guys that I see being difference makers. Um, so I think I think Europe's just got too much. I like like Paul said, I'd like to finally see a close one again. This is what I'm going for. I don't give. A, I really don't care who wins yeah. as long as it's close. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you've got to pick a team, I'm always I would support Europe over the US yeah. in that sense. But it really doesn't matter as long as it's close because that's what's best for golf. Yeah, absolutely. If it's well, the 14 all thing last week was perfect. Yeah, and I think Logue spoke about it a lot last week when we did playing from the Logue. tips. Logue. Look at the chair. chairs, <laughs> empty, empty, chair. empty I'll chairs. I'll take more a, than he does. Take a photo but of it. The it's an American team in the Ryder Cup this year and in the Solheim Cup last week that are easier to get behind. Yeah, um, probably there's 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 for people outside of yeah. Europe and the US who tend to fall towards Europe. Um, there's, there's, they're both teams are worth kind of, there's a little bit there. So I think a really close match would be great. And it'd be great to see, you know, this golf course that is being purpose built for it, get its chance to sort of shine the way it should. Um, because we've spoken so much over the last couple of weeks about golf course to a certain extent doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't, but it does. It, it doesn't matter in the same way, but when it's been perfect purpose done for this, it has a more of an influence and it'd be great to see how that works out, even just for future events and, you know, whether or not they worry about doing this sort of thing. Well, it's Wednesday here in Australia, as Huggy likes to say, nothing continues to happen and won't, will continue to not happen for another couple of days. <laughs> these are sort of delicious and excruciating these days, I think, because you get to do lots of talk and thinking about it, but you just really can't wait for the first ball to get hit. Friday morning, which is going to I think something has happened. The European Ryder Cup team released that video of Monty as director Montgomery checking the hotel, and I yeah. think they had some marvellous work there. It was good, but it wasn't, I didn't think it was as good as a lot of people have sort of thought. I don't know. I think it's started. just you get to see a, a different side. To, like, I, I haven't watched the captain's dinner yet. I think that looks yeah. somewhat interesting. I, I think the great thing about that stuff, which is not related to the Ryder Cup, but is – a guy like Colin Montgomery has been a legendary player and had a certain uh, opinion of his personality. Taking the piss yeah, out of himself absolutely. publicly is yeah. uh, admirable for the for the good of the great for the greater good for for nothing really. Yeah, there's right. uh, there's uh, no real reason that someone has to. Um, and lucky he's got golf skills because his acting is not going to get. Oh, he was atrocious. Yeah, so bad. Well, truly, truly. But but in typical Monty fashion, was loving it. Yeah. <laughs> Thought he was it, a lot it, better at it than he was. It, it's one of those things you'd watch it the first time and go, you know, you don't have to publish the first take, and it would be like, oh, that's take twenty. That's as good as he got. Brando, great of you to join us, mate. It's been great to get some insight from someone who's actually been on the ground there. What was your comment to me last week? What are you tipping for rolled ankles for the week amongst the crowds? I was going to say I'll run the book on the few because I think the <laughs> you know that uh, some of the elevation areas around that back nine in particular and. Paspal and roughs and yeah. fescues and the like. They're not really good for, you know, firm footing. If it gets so, hot. So uh, there, o- there could be the odd injury off, off course. Jeff Ogilvy told us on a State of the Game episode after Chambers Bay that Chambers. he was uh, – it, which was very, very hilly, but it was some tight-cut grass and very dry. And he said it got to the point where you'd sort of lean on your putter to pick your ball out of the hole and it would just slip. Oh, Yeah. I, I love think when that a happens. Ca- caddy broke his ankle yeah. that week coming yeah. off one of I the tees. I was there too. I was at that event. Yeah. All week. Are you US part Mount Go? <laughs> Why do you go well, to all these places? These, it's incredible the, the similarity. You know, I mean, this 
there, there are holes there at Chambers Bay. There's a hole there at Chambers Bay. I think the eighth along the top there yeah. was nobody else allowed but the players, yeah, the caddy right. and the scorer. Yeah. It was just too steep to get to. And, yeah. you know, that was that point where you came yeah. down the ninth where yeah. Jason had his issues, you know, yeah. and, and but, yeah, there were people off course. And, and the other added thing was, off course, there were a lot of sandy areas and people were having to wade up sand, uphill up yeah. and through sand. So, yeah, they were slipping and sliding and a lot more volunteers there, USGA volunteers, stopping people from trying to get to the best vantage points because they'd probably kill themselves in the process. That eighth was so isolated. I remember Dustin Johnson hit it 80 yards offline just so he could see another person before he had his second shot. <laughs> Do you remember that? He had a shot up there yeah. that was so wild off, off to the right there. It was incredible. That that one where you put the putter on and it slides, and it slides across the top. Yeah. I've seen that happen a few times. <laughs> that is, if you're not the person who does it, that's it's hilarious. hilarious. Do you like, know when, f- like when someone hits themselves in the ankle with a putter. The, the, or, or the bunker tap. There's yeah. a great one of Mickelson getting out of a bunker and he goes whack with the wedge and he hits it right on that round <laughs> bit of the ankle. It sticks out. He's hopping around and hopping Hilarious when it happens to someone else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's the old story? Um, comedy is when you fall in an open sewer pit and die. Tragedy is when I get a paper cut on my pinky finger. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of how you weigh those yeah. things up. Brando, great of you to join us today, mate. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. And Jimmy, as always, um, we've stared at an empty chair here, but I don't think it's really harm the show the product in any way no i think it's if anything raise the level <laughs> it'd be another reward winner it could be we'll uh, you we'll should maybe go away more, more often. often yeah that's uh nasty but true uh thanks mate good to have your company thank you and that's it for episode 160 of the good good golf podcast we'll be back hopefully next week for episode 161